And now, Lord, we come to your word with open hearts and open hearts, our souls, that you would inform our minds, that you would show us, O oh Lord, our great need for Christ. We thank you that your word accomplishes your work. And we thank you that your word is inerrant, that it is infallible, inspired, all-sufficient. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would apply the truths that we see today to our hearts, not only that we may know these truths, but that we may live them in obedience to you for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, we do have several Bibles out in the foyer, and you are, of course, more than welcome uh, to take some home with you. We'd be happy for you to, to take them. Uh, they're here for, for use here, of course, but if you don't have a Bible at home, please feel free to take one. We would be happy to, to let, you, let you have that. Uh, we'll be looking at John, chapter 17. Uh, verses 7 and 8 today. So turn to John chapter 17, verses 7 and 8. Um, this past Wednesday night, uh, we met here as we always do, and we were studying the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith for our biweekly study. And we were looking at the chapter in our confession that deals with the issue of baptism. That's chapter 29. Uh, chapter 29 of our confession covers uh, everything about baptism, what baptism is, why we baptize, uh, what it represents or, or what it signifies, how baptism should be performed. It even says in there what substance we're supposed to baptize somebody into, uh, who should be baptized, and so on and so forth. It's a very exhaustive chapter, uh, but not an exhausting chapter. It's not very long uh, on baptism. Now, of course, uh, that subject uh, the subject of baptism is one that separates us in a sense. It, it at least distinguishes us from our Presbyterian and Dutch Reformed brethren because uh, even though all of us, uh, Baptists, Presbyterians, Dutch Reformed, uh, we all agree that baptism is only for disciples, we as Baptists would have a different understanding of what a disciple even is than what a Presbyterian or Dutch Reformed would say. A Presbyterian, for example, would say that our children are disciples, and we'd say that that's an ideal situation. And, and as Baptists, we absolutely agree that we should absolutely be training our children up in the faith uh, so that as they grow, they will not depart from it, Right? But the truth is that no matter what we do, they may never savingly believe, even if the parents do everything right. It happens. Kids grow up. Parents were faithful. And as those kids grow up, they, they fall away from the faith for one reason or another. And so for that reason, we would say that a disciple isn't just someone who we're teaching and training up in the faith, uh, but it's somebody who is earnestly believing on Jesus and desiring, therefore, to be trained up. Because the truth is that someone who doesn't believe in Jesus or for whom the teachings of Jesus just kind of, you know, go in one ear and, and out the other, that person isn't a disciple at any age, uh, but certainly including children. 
So how can we tell who a true disciple is and thereby determine who is qualified to be baptized? That's a very important question. It's a very complicated question because on the one hand, we have to understand that we don't know. We have to understand that faith is an issue of the heart, right? Faith is something that is, is primarily internal. It's something that's a, that's a matter of the heart, and we can't look upon a person's heart. Only God can see the heart. Uh, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's what we read the Lord telling Samuel in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16, verse 7, as Samuel is preparing to, uh, to, to find the, anointed, the next anointed king of Israel, which would be the most unlikely of candidates uh, from Jesse's house, the youngest, David. Uh, so we understand that because we can't look upon the heart, we can't see what's going on in a person's heart. We understand that there's a very real sense in which we don't know the veracity and we don't know the strength of another person's faith. On the other hand, however, we also understand that a root produces a certain type of fruit. We, are, we understand that whenever somebody asks to be baptized... Um, or if they ask to become a member of a church, or they ask, uh, you know, they, they desire or aspire to enter the ministry, we have to decide whether that person is a real disciple or not. So, how are we to determine whether or not a disciple is legitimate? The question and the importance of being able to answer that question obviously still remains, even though we can't look upon the heart and don't know what's going on in the heart of another person. So let's start with what doesn't make somebody a disciple of Jesus uh, or a Christian, since really the terms disciple and Christian are essentially synonymous. They're essentially, uh, if you said a sinner's prayer that doesn't necessarily make somebody a Christian. Now, you might have done that when you first became a Christian, when you first believed. And if that's the case, that's, that's perfectly fine, just as long as you understand that saying a prayer is not what makes somebody a Christian. There, there's no sinner's prayer to be found in the Scriptures. And whenever somebody in the Scriptures asked things like, what must I do to be saved? The answer was never something like, here, just repeat this prayer after me. So saying a prayer doesn't make somebody a Christian necessarily. We also can't look at a person's emotions or their experiences as proof that they are a Christian. Uh, there are some circles of Christianity in which uh, someone isn't recognized as being a, a full Christian, a real Christian, uh, unless they've spoken in tongues. But again, nowhere in Scripture do we find that. We never find it used as a litmus test for a person being a disciple or a Christian or not. Uh, further, feelings just ebb and flow. And anybody who's been alive for more than a couple years knows this. Your feelings are up one minute, they're down the next minute. People, you know, it, your life can look like a roller coaster at times. So what do you do with people who've had one of these, you know, uh, so-called religious experiences, like, like speaking in tongues, for example, and yet hold a heretical view of Christ, such as modalism? The idea that 
There are not three persons. There is no Trinity. There's just God manifesting Himself in different forms. Uh, That kind of language is heretical. It's called modalism, Patrick. Um, (laughs) If you've seen the videos. Um, Going to church is another one. Going to church doesn't make a person a Christian either. Especially if we consider how many churches there are out there that are either completely sold out to worldly ideologies or which seek to basically be your cheerleader. They, they seek to grow by making people feel really good about themselves week in and week out instead of confronting them in their sin. There are scores and scores of people who go to church who look and act and think just like the world and the world loves them and embraces them as their own. These people love to identify with Jesus, but the thing is they hate to identify with the Bible. And needless to say, that doesn't work. That's, that, that doesn't add up at all. So what is it that makes somebody a disciple? What is it that makes somebody a Christian? That's actually something that Jesus is going to touch on here in our passage today as we continue studying Jesus' high priestly prayer from John 17. Now as we've seen, Jesus is following the prayer uh, that's outlined in Leviticus for the Levitical priest, for the high priest. Uh, in the first section of the prayer, Jesus prays for and consecrates Himself. That's in verses 1-5. to But now we're in the next part of the prayer. The the part of the prayer in which Jesus has turned His prayers uh, toward the disciples. He's praying on behalf of the disciples. Uh, They're the ones He's praying for from verses 6-19. to Now we saw verse 6 addressed the identification of the disciples, but from God's perspective. Uh, There we learn that they had belonged to God in a general sense, as all things and all people in in a very general sense belong to God since He made them, but that God had set them apart out of the world and had given them to Christ. And we saw that they had kept His Word. And so today, as Jesus continues His prayer for His disciples in this passage, He'll reveal that the way to know who is and who isn't a disciple is to see whether a person believes in the true Jesus. And when I say the true Jesus, I mean the biblical Jesus, as opposed to a Jesus who looks and acts and thinks just like we do. Uh, a God who is really just a custom-built God with a lowercase g who is created in our image rather than us being created in His image, espousing a person's uh, you know, ideologies and previously held beliefs, and so on and so forth. So we want to make a distinction between the real Jesus and a Jesus that really serves our purposes and looks and acts and thinks like we do. We want to see whether a person believes in the true biblical Jesus, and whether or not they continue to believe and keep God's Word. So the point of this passage is that the true Christian may not understand everything, especially while their faith is young, but their faith always involves understanding and trusting in Jesus, who He really is and what He has said. Now, a little caveat before we get started and before we get too far ahead of ourselves here, I'm not saying that a person can't have assurance of their salvation until a certain amount of time 
has passed. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that the question is, where are you right now? Where are you today? Who do you believe Jesus is right now? And what is your attitude toward what He taught right now? Because the moment you stop believing in the biblical Jesus, or the moment that you turn away from His Word, that's the moment that you have at least lost the basis of having true assurance of your salvation. In other words, if you're to wake up tomorrow and you say to yourself first thing in the morning, you know what? I I just don't believe that Jesus is fully God anymore. I I, I just really don't. I don't believe that He performed these miracles. I think He was probably a good teacher, but I don't believe He died for my sins. Now, if you were to wake up tomorrow and say that, if, if that were genuinely what you were feeling and believing, you would no longer have any legitimate basis for true assurance of salvation. Not until you get your, your head straight on and you start saying you know, something like, wow, you know, what was I thinking? Uh, of course I believe that Jesus is fully God. Of course I, I realize that there's no way to the Father but through Him. Of course I believe that He died for my sins and I hate the idea that I ever entertained the thought of anything less. Well now, once you get to that point, you do have a biblically legitimate basis of assurance of salvation. Or if you were to develop the attitude that God's Word is more or less a set of suggestions to consider and nothing more, and so you're free to indulge yourself in a particular sin, knowing that, you know, God's just worked it out and He's going to forgive me anyway. So you think to yourself, you know, hey, God's grace is just so amazing. And you know what? He, he gives me grace every time I sin. So every time I sin, there's more grace. And so I'm just going to sin a whole bunch so I get more grace. Stop right there. Full stop right there. Paul actually addresses that idea in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, where he writes this. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? That's basically the argument that he is considering, that grace is a good thing. Sin involves being covered in grace, so I'll sin more so that there's more grace. And he says, May it never be in Romans 6, verse 2. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? He goes on to say that if we're united with Christ in His death and in His resurrection, that we should be walking in newness of life rather than in our old ways. And he says this in verse 7. He says, For he who has died is freed from sin. The person who wants to just indulge themselves in sin is not freed from sin, in other words. The point that Paul was making is that the person who is regularly and unrepentantly practicing sin is still in bondage to sin. And there's no legitimate reason to believe that such a person who has no remorse and no repentance is truly united with Christ in his death and resurrection if he's not practicing or walking in the newness of life. All this to say that the true Christian believes in the biblical Jesus. And their faith is a faith that not only believes in Jesus and not only believes what He said, but strives to grow in obedience and continues to walk in obedience. It perseveres over the course of time. Yeah, we all have seasons where we backslide. I I 
totally get that. Every one of us, to, to some extent or another, has seasons in which we are just drawn to God and then for a while, maybe things are going really well and so we start to actually backslide. We start to, to fall back. Uh, we all have seasons in which we backslide. And, and here's the hard truth about that. It's actually a blessing. It's actually a, it's actually a blessing because if you start to worry about the fact that you are backsliding, when you realize and you start to worry because you've lost the, the assurance of salvation because of your backsliding, what does that do? It actually, that awareness of your backsliding is in the light draws you back to Christ. Brings us back to walking in the light. So the true Christian believes in the biblical Jesus. And their faith is a faith that strives to grow in obedience and it will persevere over the course of time. A person will continue to walk with Christ. Saving faith may not understand everything, but it always involves understanding and trusting in Jesus, who He is and what He said. So hopefully you found John chapter 17, verses 7 and 8 by now. Uh, Let's go ahead and look at what Jesus says as He continues in His high priestly prayer. He says, now they, speaking of the disciples, now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you, he says. That's a really interesting thing for Jesus to say, especially about the disciples who within the next hour or so, as Jesus is arrested, will just run for it. They're just going to run for it. Now, if, if they really knew what, they, what, what we would hope that they would know, if they knew that Jesus is God, if they knew that He's the Messiah, we, we might think to ourselves, why would they run when danger comes, right? So this is an interesting thing for Jesus to be saying because the truth of the matter is that the disciples really don't know or at least don't understand all that much. Their, their faith is in a very, very weak, young place. In fact, they knew very little in the sense of having an understanding or having a, a conviction about something. They, they understood or knew very little. They didn't know, for example, that Jesus had to die. They didn't understand that after He did die, He would be resurrected from the grave. They didn't know or understand that the kingdom that Jesus came to establish was not an earthly kingdom. No, their understanding was that the Messiah would be the king of ethnic Israel, uh, they didn't yet understand, as Paul uh, would later say in his letter to the Romans, uh, that they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. They didn't understand that. They didn't understand that there's a biblical distinction between physical or ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel. But what they did know, and there were some things that they knew, We've seen their professions of faith. No, was enough. What they knew, what they were completely convinced of, is that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And that He was indeed the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. And all the rest of the wonderful truths that the church 
has held on to and articulated in the Nicene Creed about Jesus. They knew that everything that the Father had given Jesus was from the Father. Even if they didn't have a perfect understanding of the Trinity, they understood that Jesus continually referred to God as His Father. So what he says here is just another way of saying they, they knew that Jesus had been sent by God as God's anointed Messiah and that everything he said held the authority of God because he taught truth. And all truth is ultimately God's truth. So we're reminded that having the correct understanding, the correct information, the correct knowledge about Jesus is very, very important. That, that, that doctrine especially Christology, the study of Christ, uh, and, and the doctrines that we derive from that, uh, these things are very, very, very important. And we're also reminded that a great faith doesn't make someone more saved than somebody who has a weak and young faith. No, a, a weak faith in the true Savior, which Jesus is, is far superior to a strong faith in a false Savior. Faith in a true Savior, even if it be weak, is better than the strongest faith in a false Savior, right? I mean, think about it. Who's better off? Uh, The the 10-year-old who believes in the biblical Jesus or the 40-year-old Greek and Hebrew scholar who thinks that Jesus was a, a good teacher, but that he wasn't really God incarnate, and absolutely he didn't die for uh, the forgiveness of sins. Who's better off, that 10-year-old who believes in the biblical Jesus, or the 40-year-old whose head is just filled with all this theological knowledge, but doesn't believe the truth? The 10-year-old, right? The faith of that 10-year-old is far superior, because it's a faith that will actually save I hear Christians complain about how Mormons go out and they they do all this stuff. Why don't we do that? As if their faith is more impressive than the faith of a 10-year-old who doesn't go out. No, that that faith of a 10-year-old is actually a miracle. Whereas the faith of a Mormon is not. That's that's something that that, uh, is derived from man. That it finds its origin in man's mind. So, friends, don't Keep your eyes on the greatness of your faith. Keep them on the greatness of your Savior. The size of your faith is not as important as the truth of who your Savior is. Now, moving on to verse 8. Verse 8 expands on what we see in verse 7. Here we see that the words, everything that you have given me, refer to the words that the Father gave Christ. Now, in Verse 6, verse 6 presented the disciples from God's perspective. They belonged to God in this general sense, as do all things and all people, but they were set apart by God for His purposes in eternity past, and they were given to Christ. Their faith and their salvation was all from Him. It was entirely of Him. These were all the things that God in His sovereign grace did to ensure their salvation. But in the passage that we're looking at today, And particularly here in verse 8. What we see is the disciples from a human point of view. From their own point of view. Which is also your point of view. And my point of view. The point of view of everyone who can only see what's outside but cannot look upon the heart of a person. So this verse, verse 8, is really looking at the disciples from a human perspective. And from this human perspective, Jesus says four things about the disciples. 
here in this verse. And again, each one of these things could be a sermon in itself. Uh, I'm not going to do that. Um, So we're just going to look at these four things very briefly. The first thing that Jesus says about them is is that Jesus has given them the words that the Father had given Him. He had given the disciples the words that the Father had given to Him. Do you see that? He says, the words which you, the Father, gave me, Jesus, I have given to them, the disciples. He's given them God's Word. Now the Word of God is the power of God. The Word of God is the power of God. Think of it this way, how did God create the universe? By the power of His Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, and the rest is history. What He created, He simply created by speaking. And so with that said, what has the power? If God's Word is God's power, what has the power to change the heart of a man who is dead in his sin and whose heart is only filled with rebellion and hatred and animosity toward God? Who can change the natural man's unregenerate heart? God's Word can. God's Word has that power. Nothing else does. Nothing else does. You can search all of the universe. You can search through all of human history. You can look through every philosophy, every ideology, every self-help program. You can look through them all, and you won't find anything else that can give life to a dead man, much less spiritual life to somebody who is spiritually dead. Family, how are you saved? Think about it. Think about your salvation. How were you personally saved? What was it that converted you personally? Was it your intellect? Is it because, you know, know, the gospel was preached to to you and a few other people, but you were the one who believed because you were so much smarter? Is it because of that that you're saved? Be very careful. Be very careful because if it was your intellect, if it's because you were able to weigh the facts more correctly, you have something in your environment. Is it, is it because you were raised in a Christian household? Again, no. No, there are scores of people who come from terrible, sinful, dark environments whom God saves. One of my best friends is a friend that I've made while he's in prison. He was actually converted while he was there. Let me tell you, he didn't come from a Christian household. He didn't come from a place where uh, he was trained up in the faith, and yet he has perhaps the strongest faith of any person I've ever met. No. You were saved not because of your intellect, not because of your environment. You were saved because someone, in some way or another, shared the Word with you. And the Spirit of God gave you eyes to see and ears to hear. That's it. That's how. The Word of God is the means that He has ordained to save people because the Word of God has the power of God. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. How can a Word do that? Because it's God's Word. Nothing else. No other Word can do that. I can't do that. You can't do that. 
but God can. And He does by and through His Word. Martin Luther once said of God's Word, he said, quote, A man's Word is a little sound that flies into the air and soon vanishes, but the Word of God is greater than heaven and earth, yea, greater than death and hell, for it forms part of the power of God and endures everlastingly. End quote. James Montgomery Boyce wrote that, quote, God could save the entire race by a fiat if He so chose, but He has not chosen to operate in this way. Rather, He has declared that it will be by His Word, preached and shared by His people, and applied to the hearts of individuals by His Holy Spirit, that men and women will be saved. End quote. And when we start to understand this, we see how ridiculously and absurdly unbiblical and foolish it is that we would ever think to tone down the Word when we preach in order that we not offend anybody. There's a well-known Presbyterian minister out there who's written a lot of books who once said, there's a video of this on on YouTube, he once said that the practice of, of preaching the Gospel is no longer working to draw people to Christ, so we need to come up with something else. What else is there? What else can we say or do that has the power of God? Nothing. What else is there but the sinful and the fallen ideas of man and possibly of demons? How foolish to think that we could come up with something better than what God Himself has ordained. God is all wise, God is all powerful. God is sovereign, and what He has ordained is the preaching, the sharing of His Word as the means of opening a person's heart to believe. God could have sent angels to preach the gospel, but instead, He chose frail instruments, broken vessels like you and me. He sent us forward. He sent His people forward to be the ones to preach And to share the Word, let me just encourage you to sow generously. In fact, as I mentioned at the beginning of service, we have two new tracts that are available for you to take home and to distribute. Uh, The first is called, Three Things God Cannot Do. Uh, Those three things are, number one, God cannot lie. Number two, God cannot change. And number three, God cannot allow sinners into heaven. And then it goes from there, beeline to Christ and the Gospel. The second one is called A Greater Danger Than COVID-19, An Effective Cure Available to All. Both of these tracts are just filled with Scripture, with God's Word. So whether you use tracts or whether you share the Gospel verbally, God has ordained that this work of saving sinners will be done through His Word. Man's ideologies, man's thoughts, man's philosophies will not do what God's Word can do. God's Word will do what He has ordained for it to do. So, so generously. Because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. But how many of you know that it's possible to be faithful to to preach, to proclaim, to share God's Word only for the the person or for the, the people that you're sharing it with Uh, to just kind of let it go in one ear and out the other. You know, kind of like when you tell your kids to clean their room. 
Kind of like when you tell your kids, you need to wash your hands and get ready for dinner or something like that. Let me say this. We don't preach the Word. We don't share the Word in order that we see the results. We preach the Word. We share the Word to simply be faithful to what God has instructed us and called us to do, and we leave the results in God's hands. You plant a seed. What's God going to do with that seed? You don't know. Don't concern yourself with that because you're not instructed to make sure that the seed comes to fruit. You're just instructed to plant the seed and let God do with it what God will do with it. But what Jesus moves to next here in our text, and the second thing that He says about the disciples, is that the Word that He gave to them, the Word that He gave to the disciples didn't just go in one ear and out the other. Because He was fully God. He knew what was going on in their hearts. He could look upon their hearts. And therefore He says, the words which you gave Me, I have given to them. And, look what He says next, they received them. They received them. Now the Greek word that gets translated received, it's an active verb, uh, which means to take or to lay hold of something. It's the word that you would use of somebody running a relay race when the baton is passed to them. They take it. They they grab it. They're they're not going to let it go. And they run with it. They go with it. Imagine a relay race in which one runner hands the baton off to somebody else only for his teammate to just kind of casually let it fall to the ground as if he's not interested in it. You'd think, you fool, you you needed that. That's exactly what people do when the Word of God is preached to them and they just let it go in one ear and out the other. That's That's what usually happens, at least from our perspective. That's what it usually looks like when we share the Word with somebody. But we have the understanding that they need it as surely as that runner needs the baton from his teammate. But they at least from our perspective, it might look at the moment like they don't want it. And so they don't receive it. They don't lay hold of it. They don't run with it. But we have to understand that it's not enough for a person to simply hear the Word. It's not enough to simply hear the Gospel preached. We must receive it. We must lay hold of it. We must possess it as our own in such a way that it penetrates not only our minds and fills our minds with with some kind of information, but that also penetrates our hearts so that our thinking and our acting, our living, are completely redirected by it. Because receiving God's Word, truly receiving it, will always result in us being directed toward Christ. Think about the religious leaders in Jesus' day. Did they know the Scriptures? Did they know God's Word? Up here they did. They had it all up here. They, They had the Scriptures. They knew the Scriptures. But they only had them in one sense. They may have read and they may have memorized the words themselves, but the Word was not in them. It was in their minds, but it wasn't in their hearts. They used God's Word as a means to their own end, but failed to see that all the Scriptures were written about and thus pointed to none other than Christ Himself. Back in chapter 5, Jesus said to the Pharisees, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about Me. Why didn't they understand? 
that it was all written to point them to Christ because they did not receive the Word. But contrast them, contrast those religious leaders in Jesus' time with the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. Luke says of them in uh, in Acts 17 verses 11 to 12 that when the Gospel was preached to them, he says they received it. They received the Word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And then we read the result in verse 12. Therefore, because they received it, therefore many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. So no wonder the Bereans became so widely respected that even to this day, we refer to them not just as Bereans, but as the noble Bereans. Because they did what a wise man, what a noble person would do when they heard God's Word. It didn't just go in one ear and out the other. They received it. They laid hold of it. And they did so with great eagerness. Do you? Do you have the same attitude toward the Gospel, toward God's Word? Is that your attitude toward Scripture? I hope so because, man, a 50-minute sermon is a long sermon if you're not eager for receiving God's Word. So first, Jesus gave the disciples God's Word. Secondly, they laid hold of it. They received it. Thirdly, they truly understood that Jesus came from the Father. He says, The words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you. Do you see that there's a cause and effect there between the second and the third things that he says? Why did they have this understanding? Because they received the Word of God. Now some would argue that the Christian faith is just a blind faith that you're expected to just believe without knowing anything. But that's clearly not the case here. That's not biblical at all, by the way. It's not true at all. No, we don't have blind faith. At the same time, we also recognize that we don't have all the answers to every theological question possible in the universe before we come to faith in Jesus But we need to start with some knowledge, just like the disciples did. They didn't have a a, a vast understanding of all these things. They had a very small understanding of some important things that Jesus is pointing out here. Now, one of the things that we've seen as we've gone through John's Gospel is that John repeatedly quotes Jesus saying things that indicate that with him, when it comes to him, he's unlike the world. With the world, seeing is believing, but with Jesus, believing is seeing, uh, which is why the miracles did nothing to convince the masses or the Pharisees to believe in him savingly. So, is he getting it backwards here? And we'd say, no. We're not saying that you need to understand everything, but you do need to understand something. We're definitely not saying that faith is blind. So on one hand, we understand that a person isn't going to have every possible question or objection to the Christian faith answered before they come to faith. I've been walking with the Lord for close to 30 years now, 
And I still come up with new questions. Uh, but on the other hand, we recognize that God gave us minds. And he, when He gave us minds, He knew that we would use them and that we would use them to come up with questions and that our questions would actually serve to give us a deeper understanding of His Word. So when you come to the Scriptures, you come with questions. Ask questions. Who said it? Why did they say it? What's the context of this? That's how we use our minds that God has given us to understand more deeply. But a person must understand from the outset who Jesus is. And not only understand this on an intellectual level, not only have this, uh, this information, this data, but they must also believe it to the point that they trust Him so much that they are confident that He is exactly who He claims to be and that we have no other way of being reconciled to God. No other way of being saved apart from Him saving us. We must have the conviction that He is fully God. Fully man and fully God. That He is God incarnate and that what He taught about life, what He taught about death, what He taught about God and salvation, that these things were all unequivocally true. If we doubt or we deny what he's taught, not only about these types of things, but about anything or everything that he said, we are ruined and just left without hope. Think about it for a second. If you don't really truly believe that everything Jesus said, especially when he claimed to be God, if you don't believe that everything he said was true, then why should you obey him? Why should you evangelize? Why should you walk in holiness? Why should you do anything that He's asked us to do? I mean, if He was wrong even about just one thing, couldn't He be wrong about two things? That's where your mind's going to go once you start thinking, oh, I don't think He really said this or I don't think He really said that. Where you're going to go from there is, oh, well, I can, I can apply that same thing to, to this over here. I, I don't think He really said this. I don't think He really said that. And if, he's, if he could have been wrong about one or two things, why couldn't he have been wrong about everything? You might say, well, that's, just a, that's a slippery slope. That slippery slope isn't just a conspiracy theory or an informal fallacy. It's a very real danger. If he could be wrong about anything, why would we believe him? Why would we obey why would we do the things that he has instructed us to do, like evangelize? The truth is, we wouldn't. We'd justify a way around it by saying, oh, I don't think he said this, or I don't think he meant that. Think about the disciples following the crucifixion of Jesus. They, they were left feeling like they were just without hope. They, they were downcast. They were depressed. But after Jesus appears to them following His resurrection, they spend the remainder of their lives sharing and preaching the Gospel, proclaiming the good news that Christ the Messiah had come, that He had died for the sins of all who believe in Him, and that He had risen from the grave to prove that His work was pleasing to God and sufficient for our salvation. Why would they do that even unto death? And by the way, their death would come sooner as a result of them being faithful to that message than their lives would have been if they hadn't been faithful. Why would they herald this message, this good news that was so offensive to natural man until their dying breath? Because they really believed it. 
Because it really happened. And they understood, they believed that everything Jesus had said was true. And that others who did not know what happened, that who did not know Jesus, who did not know what He taught, that they needed to know these things as well, as well so that they could be saved too. But Jesus' disciples didn't just stop there. They didn't just stop at having information, at having knowledge. It wasn't enough that they should just merely have a, fa- uh, you know, a, a series of facts to, to present to somebody. It had to go beyond just intellectual knowledge for them, just as it does for us. I mean, intellectual knowledge, okay, 2 plus 2 is 4. Would I go to my grave defending that truth? No. So it had to go beyond just intellectual knowledge, right? And it does for us as well. If knowledge doesn't lead us to the fourth thing that Jesus lists here, it is, that knowledge is, in and of itself, absolutely worthless. It's, it's filler for our brains and nothing else. So first, Jesus gave the disciples God's Word. Secondly, they received it. They laid hold of it. Third, they truly understood, this is intellectual, that Jesus came from the Father. And fourth, Jesus says, and they believed that You sent Me. They didn't just stop at the data. They didn't just stop at the the intellectual information about Jesus. They actually believed in the sense of trusting in what Jesus had said. See, this is what sets a Christian apart from demons. Uh, d- does the devil know that Jesus is fully God? Of course he does. He knows. D- does he know that Jesus was sent forth from the Father? Yeah, he knows that too. The devil and all his demons know these things to be true. It's information though. They don't believe savingly. They don't believe in a, in a saving sense. See, faith involves an individual's volition, their will. The, the Reformers in the Protestant Reformation, the Reformers identified three distinctive aspects of biblical saving faith. First, it does involve data. It does involve knowledge, uh, filling our minds with some kind of truth. But not just any information or any data, but the right information. True information. For example, the the disciples didn't believe that Jesus was uh, the Greek god Zeus in human flesh. That would be the wrong information, right? They didn't believe that his, uh, you know, that, that Jesus was uh, a created being who had a brother uh, that turned out to be the devil. That wouldn't be the biblical Jesus. That wouldn't be the right information either. They, they, they believed the right information. Their data would have been flawed with all those other things. They had to know that He was the one true, everlasting, living God, Jehovah in human flesh. But there has to be more than just this stagnant set of facts, this, this intellectual information. We have to believe that those things are actually true. The second aspect of saving faith is that we must give intellectual assent to the data. Convicted that the data is actually true. And convicted to the point of embracing or being willing to act upon the truthfulness of the information that we have. And this is where the Christian and the demon go in different directions because a demon does not have this belief. They don't have the volition, the willingness to act upon what they know to be true. Rather, what 
they believe is to contradict it. The third aspect of saving faith that the Reformers identified is what they referred to as fiducia. Fiducia. Can you guess some English words that came from that, like fiduciary? Uh, It's the Latin word for personal trust. R.C. Sproul said that this final aspect is, quote, referring to a fiduciary commitment by which I put my life in the lap of Jesus. I trust Him and Him alone for my salvation. End quote. So it starts with some intellectual knowledge, but it isn't just intellectual. It involves both the mind and what's in the mind penetrating the depths of the heart. What we know and what we trust. The faith that the disciples had is the same faith that you and I must have, friends. A faith that we actually trust in Jesus with. A faith that we act on, that changes our lives. It's a faith that believes that Jesus is the full revelation of God and then basing what we think and how we act on that. Jesus Christ was the full revelation of God to man. Fully God. Fully man. He upheld all the demands of the law so that all who savingly believe in Him, who trust in Him, will indeed be saved. His righteousness is credited to them as if they have lived His perfect life and their sin is credited to Him so that all their sin is washed away and they stand in Christ's own perfect righteousness before God, forgiven, washed clean, blameless. Did the disciples understand that at this point? Maybe not. Maybe not just yet, because they they still didn't understand that Jesus was even going to die. But they would understand in time. The disciples knew and believed that Jesus was God incarnate, and that He spoke the truth. And even though they knew and understood very dimly, they grew in their understanding, and their faith did persevere and grow over time. They continued to walk in God's Word. Though their faith was at times very weak and very frail, and we're going to see that in the very next scene when they abandoned Him, there was nevertheless sufficient grace to sustain them through their countless trials and through their journeys through this life. What strength and perseverance their faith had wasn't their own. It was the words of Christ. It was the power of God working in them, sustaining them, sustaining their faith, overcoming their doubts, overcoming their fears until the Lord eventually called each one of them home. And, what, and that's what true, saving, biblical faith will do for us too, friends. What Jesus says of His disciples here, He can say of all who truly believe on Him. He put His Word in them. They received it. They knew it to be true. And they believed it. They trusted it. And because they believed it, they would persevere until the end. They continued walking in it. Hebrews chapter 4 warns us about those who heard the word. And then in verse 2 it says, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. May that never be said of us, friends. 
May it not just go in one ear and out the other like it did for those people. Your own liking or making or custom design. Do you believe that what He taught was true, all of it? If so, then just like the disciples, may that faith inform and influence every aspect of your life as it not only fills your minds, but as it also penetrates your hearts. And know that this type of faith, this biblical definition of faith, this faith will always persevere because God will always persevere in pouring out His ever-sufficient grace upon you throughout your journey in this life. Saving faith doesn't mean you understand everything, but it means you understand what's important. That is who Jesus is. It always involves understanding and trusting in Jesus, who He is, what He said, what He did, including His claim to be God in the flesh. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You, O Lord, that it was Your good pleasure to have us study Your Word today. And we pray, O Lord, that by the power of Your Spirit that these words would not just go in one ear and out the other. But, O Lord, we ask that You would take Your Word and by the power of Your Spirit, press it into the depths of our hearts. Apply these truths to our lives. We ask, O Lord, that You would cause the root that's in our heart to bear much good fruit in our lives. We pray that our faith would be visible outwardly. But, O God, we ask that You would tend to Your Word that You have planted in our hearts today. May it fill our minds with understanding, but may it fill our hearts with faith in Christ, who He is, what He taught, what He claimed. May that completely transform the way we see the world. May it give us the courage to share the good news of Jesus with our neighbors. Help us, O Lord, to not only love You, but to love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves, that we would desire their salvation from the flames of hell as well as our own, all for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.